0: Empire Lines uncovers the unexpected, often two-way flows of empires through art. Interdisciplinary thinkers use individual artworks as artefacts of imperial exchange, revealing the how and why of the monolith empire. No, No, I want to talk to you. Good, good. In this episode, curators Jake Subrine Richards and Vicky Avery locate Cambridge within the transatlantic slave trade, connecting global commodities and local consumption, historic and contemporary art, to reveal how 500 years of colonial resistance constructed new cultures known as the Black Atlantic.
1: My name is Dr Vicky Avery and I'm Keeper of European Sculpture and Decorative Arts at the Fitzwilliam Museum and I'm also co-curator of Black Atlantic.
2: My name's Dr. Jake Brian richards I'm an assistant professor of history at the London School of Economics and I'm the co-curator of Black Atlantic, Power People Resistance at the Fitzwilliam Museum.
0: The period of transatlantic slavery spans over 500 years, between 1400 and 1900, a period when European empires colonised the Americas and transported over 12 million people to these colonies from Africa as slaves. This history is often recounted as something that was concluded in the past and often from the perspective of imperial and colonial powers... This exhibition focuses instead on the perspective of the Black Atlantic. What is it?
2: Sure, well, the Black Atlantic was a term used by Robert Farris Thompson and then Paul Gilroy, uh, two academics who were very interested in the formative role that Atlantic enslavement played in connecting the four continents of the Atlantic world and the ocean that they shared between them, and how that produced new cultures that weren't defined by Atlantic enslavement, but partly through resistance to it, and beyond that, becoming a limitless conceptual space for new forms of politics, new forms of connection between people, to invert the power hierarchy, to see part of the pernicious histories of Atlantic enslavement, but also to centre stories of black people's resistance to these pernicious histories, and also imaginations that extend way beyond Atlantic enslavement too in that resistance to Atlantic enslavement there were new forms of cultural production we see that in a range of uh, sources, Um, towards the end of our exhibition we have entities uh, made by Maroon people in Suriname whose uh, descendants had freed themselves from slavery and who on the entities that they used to form their new communities such as stools or canoe paddles, they've incorporated symbols of West African political power so here we see West African art forms being used to uh, imagine a new form of community beyond the nation's state for instance
0: yourself and Vicky have collaborated as curators perhaps giving an insider and outsider perspective on the museum itself being from London and Vicky from here in Cambridge. This is a history though that must begin at home. The show opens with two portraits one of Alardo Equiano a writer and an abolitionist who in his late life was based in Cambridgeshire and right next to him is the Viscount Richard Fitzwilliam. Who was this man and how is he connected to the Fitzwilliam itself?
2: Absolutely well actually the show opens with a portrait of a man in a red suit who might be allowed at Equiano but whose actual identity at this moment in time in research is unknown um, alongside Richard Fitzwilliam and this gets us to the heart of the story because it gets us to the heart of how actually in the past black sitters for portraits didn't necessarily have their identities recorded in detail so there's unequal historical knowledge now between the black sitter for a portrait and the white sitter produced at a very similar moment in time. Richard Fitzwilliam uh, founded this museum by uh, bequeathing £100,000 plus his uh, art collection, books and manuscripts to uh, the University of Cambridge to establish a museum named after him in 1816. Fitzwilliam was wealthy from a number of sources, including uh, land ownership in Ireland. But what hasn't really been told before is the fact that he inherited some of his wealth and some of his artworks from his maternal grandfather, Matthew Decker. Matthew Decker was born in Amsterdam. He moved to Britain uh, in the late 17th century, and by uh, the 1710s, he was at the heart of the British establishment as a merchant. He was a founding director of the South Sea Company and also a director of the Royal African Company, and involved in the East India Company he was an investor in these companies which were all involved in either slave trading or colonisation and he derived wealth from that So Richard Fitzwilliam established a museum with money and works of art and books acquired in part from slave ownership and that is the story that we wanted to start the exhibition with, but crucially not to just pin it on individuals. We're not here to talk about individual blame or guilt, we're here to see how this one story allows us to see into multiple stories of the role that the systems that Atlantic enslavement played in forming visual norms, in forming patterns of consumption and production, and in inspiring resistance movements to such forms of exploitation.
0: In a previous episode with Dr Helen Paul, we looked at the Luxborough Galley on fire and how the South Sea Company was very strongly connected to the Bank of England Mm -hmm. at the time. This exhibition looks not only at the bank, but how the museum and the university are all implicated in this history as economic, cultural and educational institutions, really the structure of society itself. Earlier, the director of the museum mentioned how this building, the grandeur and smugness, is very much part of the exhibition. And in the context of the call to decolonize museums as imperial institutions, do you think that we can?
2: It's a great question, and one where I don't think there's necessarily a definitive answer, certainly not one that I could provide. I think what we've been really pleased to do is stage this exhibition inside the Founders' Galleries, which were built in part from profits from slave trading. I think this is the first time that the Fitzwilliam has had a temporary exhibition within the Founders' Galleries. The design allows us to disrupt some of the grandeur. We've designed, uh, for instance, a build where images of black people such as uh, a uh, portrait of an African man occurs early on the show as alone and then again in the penultimate section we come to a reproduction of the same image on the wall and I think that's really powerful because in the grandeur of a, a gallery we come across images that aren't typically seen in Cambridge uh, and narratives and stories behind such images that aren't often told.
0: Black Atlantic also focuses on how Cambridge academics researched into pseudoscientific racial theories, which lay the foundations of eugenics, colorism, and shadism in society today. We see these historic and contemporary works curated in conversation. There are interventions by Alberta Whittle, Sakari Douglas-Camp and Donald Locke, artists that we've explored on the podcast before. We're looking, though, now at Keith Piper's The Coloured Codex, a work from 2023 that's 15 pigments arranged in an invented hierarchy of skin tones. Can you talk a bit about curating this exhibition and putting these different works in contrast, but how that actually shows continuities over time? We decided to
1: include a number of works by contemporary black makers um, that would act as critiques of uh, or counterbalances to or just be in dialogue with particularly maybe problematic historic works of art. So in the section of the show we were looking at here, We're thinking about colourism, we're thinking about colour bars, we're thinking about anti-black racism and where that came from. Atlantic enslavement was really only possible through this sort of historic race-based science. We've got books here from the Royal Society. The Royal Society was um, supported by the British monarchy and it was England's leading science institution. Intellectual theories were developed that simply said white people are Superior to black people. Of course, this is totally, totally false. There is only one race. We have a video that explains this, Homo sapiens. But in order to justify the enslavement of black people, you had to argue that they were somehow intellectually inferior and that somehow they were subhuman. They were not part of the human species. So white scientists developed this racist, historic systems of ideas that basically put the white people at the top of the hierarchy and the black people at the bottom, and with that enabled Atlantic enslavement. So we've got this work by Keith Piper here to contrast with a colour chart that is in a publication from the Royal Society uh, when they were trying to determine how do you call colour and how can you get a standardisation of colour it's only in the darker colours and in black you suddenly get human beings mentioned. So you've got a sort of an Ethiopian black and you've got a Negro black. And so this is ultimately very, very racist. And Keith Piper's Coloured Codex is absolutely a commentary on that. And so if I may, I'd like to use Keith's own words. So he says about this work... The coloured codex exists as an ironic and parodic commentary upon what evolved as an imposed hierarchy of social privilege within the brutal spaces of the slave plantations of the 18th and 19th centuries. They are a set of imposed hierarchies that still resonate into the present day. So we've included this work of art because I think some people think slavery happened 200 years ago. I'm sorry this happened, but what's relevance to me? There's no problem today. What we make very clear in the show through the interpretive panels and through the works of Art Chosen is that actually anti-black racism is still pernicious, it's still invasive and its roots lie in transatlantic
0: enslavement. Jake, we're standing next to a work called Vanishing Point 25 by Barbara Walker. It's black and white and the paper is embossed. And we can see a really striking image of a young black man guiding a horse into the centre. Barbara's work has always focused on visibility and non-visibility of black bodies in visual culture and society. How does a work like this highlight the histories and contributions of black individuals, often hidden in plain sight?
2: One really powerful narrative we wanted to explore in the exhibition was how representations of black people in European fine art really change across the period where slave trading took place. In the early 16th century, black people were depicted in European fine art in a number of roles, often with dignity or status, um, often at the centre of the canvas. Yet by the 17th century and certainly the early 18th century, the dominant mode of depiction had changed. Black people were typically painted at the side of a canvas and artists often position them as holding something up as a gesture to the white uh, sitter at the centre of the canvas to emphasise their honour. The two works that we're standing in front of, one is a uh, portrait of John Byron where an unnamed uh, black attendant is holding the reins to a horse up to Byron uh, to emphasise his uh, military status and on the left we've juxtaposed the uh, painting with a work on paper by Barbara Walker where she has reworked a portrait of a Scottish nobleman embossing the outline of the nobleman and his estate and drawing in in really careful detail the black attendant who is holding a horse uh, for the Scottish nobleman. And I think what's really powerful about Walker's work is that by drawing the figure in in such careful detail, we're immediately drawn to their gaze and their perspective and expression in a way that is independent of the white sitter, whereas in the original works, often the black person's posture and expression are subordinate and rely solely on the power of the main person at the centre of the frame to have any standing.
0: More constructively, the exhibition focuses on the contributions of indigenous, enslaved and free black people to major scientific discoveries. In the earlier rooms, we see an extraordinary portrait of an African man from the 16th century, which is believed to be the earliest such individual portrait of a black person in European painting. Alongside him and his trademark Habsburg jaw, we see images of black kings, but Vicky, we're standing next to you, John Tiley's man beneath a breadfruit tree. What's the significance of this work? We were very, very keen to have it, and we're incredibly grateful to the Linnaean Society of London for
1: the loan of it. It's the earliest um, example of a work by a black artist in the show. We're not entirely sure of the date of manufacture. Um, It's probably around the sort of 1790s or early 1800s. But John Tiley, who was a free man of colour in Antigua, and he worked in the St Vincent Royal Botanical Gardens, and he would have been collecting specimens similar to those that we've got on display from the Herbarium in Cambridge. And he was a fantastically talented botanical illustrator. But what is very rare about this one is it's actually signed very proudly, J. Tiley Dell for Delliniavit. So, you know, John Tiley drew it, basically. So he's actually got agency. The other thing that is um, exceptional about this is that most botanical illustrators would only ever draw the plant, the specimen. It may be from um, different angles or so on. But this, as you say, is a drawing of a breadfruit tree and underneath its shade is a seated portrait of a black man and from his clothing the fact that he's only wearing um, blue cotton pantaloons he has no shirt he is unshod we understand this man to be an enslaved worker presumably again on Saint Vincent and the questions are multiple you know why did John Tiley choose to include this man you could say oh well it's there simply for scale I think it's to call attention to those enslaved workers in the botanical garden it's also the pose of the man very heroic classicizing pose it looks actually rather like the Apollo Belvedere for those of you who know that classicizing torso so he's given a great heroism so I think it's saying something about the dignity of those enslaved black workers I know we could have chosen other example of Tylee's work of other the botanical specimens that put us to have the breadfruit tree a tree that was imported into the Caribbean to provide cheap fodder for the enslaved workforce so there's a kind of a rather cruel irony in that to have the signature of John Tarley in such a beautiful uh, and amazingly competent work and including the enslaved black man as a great hero um, makes that a wonderful contribution to Black Atlantic.
0: Vicky, a lot of your work focuses on consumption. You've written about the art of food in Europe and also presented on the pineapple, a history from Columbus to Del Monte. How does looking at global commodities and their local consumption help us to make connections with the history of transatlantic slavery and today? That's a great question.
1: Many of us consume sugar or hot chocolate or tea or coffee. These are everyday commodities and one doesn't necessarily think hard enough about the origin stories, the sources. Where did these come from? What are the circumstances under which they were produced? These hot drinks that are still everyday um, favourites, say tea, coffee, hot chocolate were unpalatable they were too bitter to drink without sugar Um, and so there's a mass material culture and visual culture around commodities the goods the consumables that are produced in the caribbean by the enslaved black workforce for the benefit and enjoyment of white europeans well, we, we make a point about fashionability and about luxury. So, the pineapple requires um, a display stand, or the sugar requires an airtight container, or, or a sugar bowl to have it on, on the tea table. The European consumer, you know, would have been tempted by Wedgwood or any of the sort of British uh, ceramic factories. Oh, you know, this year you have to have a pineapple-shaped teapot. This is your this is your fancyware. And then three years later, oh no, it, the cauliflower is now the engine. Shape or whatever it may be. Uh, And so a seemingly innocuous teapot is a bearer of these stories.
0: But ultimately, what underpins the whole thing is Atlantic slavery. We're looking at some Delftware ceramic tiles that were made for a fireplace in the Dutch Republic, but they wound up at Kettle's Yard just down the road. And we're also standing by a giant pro slavery punch bowl. Vicky, the story of ceramics as curated in museums often focuses on abolitionism, but this is clearly an object that shows us how ceramics were used for different means.
1: Yes, we think of Wedgwood being part of the Society for Effecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade. He was very friendly with William Wilberforce, the iconic if problematic image the medallion for emancipation. But um, as you rightly say, ceramics were also used to promote the other side of the argument. We were so delighted that the Potteries Museum in Stoke on Trent were happy to lend this, as you say, enormous punch bowl. I think if I've got my stats correct, it's believed to be the largest punch bowl to have survived from the period. This particular um, punch bowl was made for um, a slave trader called George Dickinson and you've got four great boats with British flags on them and you can actually see what we understand in the foreground, a little rowing boat with a number of figures in it and presumably these are supposed to actually represent um, newly captured Africans being um, transported in this rowboat to the slaving vessels. Uh, You've also got various nautical equipment um, bombards, and it also says very proudly, success to the Africa trade. That means success to trading enslaved people. The decoration really shows the violence, actually, of the, of the slave trade. And so this man who became wealthy and influential through trading people had this enormous punch bowl made you know, in his honour, precisely to make your point, that ceramics have power and they can be used to promote, you know, different sides of that particular abolitionist argument.
0: Ceramics can also serve as a source of pride for other communities. Jacqueline Bishop is a contemporary artist who's more recently collaborated with the English porcelain manufacturer Wedgwood to plate up an 18-piece history of the dinner table.
3: I'm Jacqueline Bishop. I am a writer, a visual artist, and a scholar. I was born in Jamaica and have spent a lot of time in the U.S. and the U.K. The work that is currently on display at the Fitzwilliam History at the Dinner Table is a work that, it's kind of a homage to my grandmother, my great-grandmother, so many Jamaican women. One of the ways that you show your womanhood in Jamaica is when you acquire your mahogany cabinet and you start filling it with these dishes. And I wanted to dialogue with these women and with history, and I found that the way to do it was with the decorative, was with the domestic, because there I found their voices. So I started doing research into these dishes and ended up with sugar and slavery. So I wondered what would happen if I made that history obvious the history that gave birth to these dishes that are so valued and collected in Jamaica.
1: They're very worthwhile taking each one very slowly, very carefully, unpicking them and trying to understand why certain images have been juxtaposed. And this was always very interesting for me as a curator
3: to go back and work out where the source material came from. They came from natural history paintings, postcards. I mean, Stedman, for example, Uh, had these uh, lithographs made and whatnot. Horrible things. There's one that I really, really love. It's a horrific image from Stedman's journey in Suriname where the woman is being hung. I decided to put some flowers around her to give her her modesty back. It was very important for me to give these women their modesty. All these human feelings that they were denied during the process of slavery. Implicit in this is a sense of um, mutuality and mutual endeavor. I feel that Dr. Victoria Avery and I are on a mutual conversation together. And so these plates are not meant to turn people away. They are meant to be a point of reflection in our mutual history as Jamaicans were part of the British empire. And if Victoria Avery and I can find the means to have these difficult conversations, her as a a white British woman, and myself as a black Jamaican and American woman, it's possible.
0: Jake, a lot of your wider work looks at resistance within the constraints of law. You did your PhD at the University of Cambridge and you also studied at Harvard. I'd love to know more about your contemporary experience of working within these constraints. Did you notice differences in both experiences of and the academia around blacknesses in the US and in the UK?
2: I went to the National Museum of African American History and Culture in 2017 which must have been fairly soon after it had opened and i thought what was really powerful about the curation there was how you had a story that moved broadly chronologically and actually that chronology moved as you moved up through the gallery uh, instead of just linear on one floor where you saw the really important role that african-american people have played in the formation of the united states both in terms of enslavement but also beyond them uh, to new forms of political movement the civil rights movement and really ending with moments of possible hope um, or uh, justice in the future the US context is different from the UK although at the same time both have a shared history of racial slavery. I think as an academic historian I'm Always interested in how new research, including new archival research, can help us tell new stories. I've been really excited to be part of the British Art Network as an emerging curator, where we have really thought carefully about the purpose of museums and different forms of curation, including with contemporary artists um, and with historic um, works. I wouldn't say that I am um, doing anything as bold as reforming our our curatorial practice. What has always excited me about working with museums is that museums are a really powerful space for people to come together together and talk about new stories I think museums are often a place where people feel comfortable to explore difference to um, encounter the unknown to rethink the familiar um, and spaces where they can make new forms of social relationship Um, I think we desperately need those in our contemporary moment and uh, I think that's what the power of an exhibition can be it can become a space for new conversation that's certainly our intention with the curation, for instance we've tried to incorporate lots of open questions in our labels and towards the end of the show for instance we ask every visitor what do you think a future world of repair might look like Um, these are designed as conversation starters we're not trying to shut down any debate we're instead trying to open up with new research that leads to new stories.
0: A conversation that has definitely just begun and I've got a hundred more questions I could ask but unfortunately that's all the time we've got thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today.
2: My pleasure thank you for having me
0: thank you so much. And I do hope that your wonderful listeners will actually make the time to come to
1: Cambridge and look at Black Atlantic.
0: Black Atlantic Power, People, Resistance runs at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge until the 7th of January, 2024. The first in a series of exhibitions and gallery interventions planned until 2026. For more, you can read my article. You'll find all the links in the episode notes. Empire Lines is produced by Yelena Sofronievaich. For more episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If that's okay. If you
3: need to go to the BBC, sorry. Time. Say that again. Oh, sorry. Different BBC. Oh, different BBC. Sorry. Yeah. No, you go. <laughs> I thought there was only one BBC. <laughs> are you? Are you guys okay? You're finished.